0: Welcome to the Cherry Hills podcast. We are in a series called Advent and Isaiah. It's our hope that as we spend time in this ancient text, we will get to know Jesus better this season. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, good morning, church. My name is Luke. I get to lead our high school ministry. And it's a privilege to get to worship with you today and to open up the scriptures together. So as we continue in our series where we're looking at Advent through the eyes of Isaiah, would you grab a copy of God's word and open the scriptures with me to Isaiah chapter nine. Isaiah chapter nine is where we're gonna be at today. Now, Advent, as you may know, is a tradition belonging to the global church that dates back well over a thousand years. And it's an opportunity for us to prepare ourselves for the celebration of Christmas, the time when we commemorate that God, the eternal preexistent son, became a human being, flesh and blood in our midst. So if you're following your notes, Advent reminds us of the past and the future coming of Jesus. So Christmas is all about light and joy, but Advent gives us the proper context into which the joy of Christmas emerges. Recently, I had the opportunity to travel to Colorado and do some hiking with uh, some some old friends of mine, a couple of guys I've just known for years and years and years. And I love to hike. I love everything about it. I mean, the nature, the quiet, the scenery, the sweat, the beauty of everything. It's just, it's an incredible time to get to do that. So we're out in Colorado and we're going all over the place for about a week in Rocky Mountain National Park and some other areas. And we decide to go and spend uh, one of our nights in Breckenridge. Because we want to wake up the next morning and go hike Quandary Peak, which is a mountain uh, right outside the, uh, the town of Breckenridge. And so uh, because I'm uh, still young enough and frugal enough, we stayed at a hostel and slept in a room with strangers, which was an interesting experience, but it was convenient for us. So we did that. And we get up the next morning when it's still dark outside. And we pack our bag up and our lunch, our food for the day, our snacks and all that. We get in the car, drive to the trailhead. It's still dark And we begin our journey up the mountain and the stars are still out and it's still still nighttime outside. And yet as we go through the course of this trek up uh, the mountain, up Quandary Peak, the sky gradually begins to brighten. And there's this moment on the trail where we got to watch the moon dip below the ridgeline and trade places with the sun. And it just became this beautiful, radiant day as the sky continually lit up the trail that we were on. As we made our final ascent and got to the peak, it was just just stunning, just breathtaking out. The way that the sky was just lit up and the sun was illuminating the entire mountain range and the valley floor beneath us. It felt like we didn't so much get to watch Uh, The sunrise so much as we were somehow in it, you know, like we were part of it in a way. And when I was a kid, I used to be scared of the dark. But now that I'm older, I've come to realize that sometimes beautiful things begin in dark places. This is what Advent speaks to. There's a brilliant theologian named Fleming Rutledge, and she has uh, this just incredible way of saying what Advent is all about. There's a quote here I put in your notes. She says, Advent is designed to show that the meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point if we are not willing to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. So with this in mind, let's hear this word from the Lord spoken through the prophet Isaiah, beginning in verse one of Isaiah chapter nine. The prophet writes, "'Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom "'for those who are in distress.'" In the past, he, that's God, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, and that's a reference, by the way, to Gideon's miraculous victory over the Midianites. You can read about that in Judges 6 and 7 and 8. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born and to us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now the word Isaiah has for us today is a word of hope. It's an occasion for Rejoicing, he has this wonderful announcement. The light has dawned, and that light comes in the form of a royal birth. To us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. But you may notice that this wonderful announcement begins not with the light, but with the darkness. It begins nevertheless, and it begins with a people who have walked in darkness. So before we turn our attention to the light, Let's do our due diligence here and take a fearless inventory of the darkness. You see, Isaiah lived in a dark time. Things were not going well when Isaiah was a prophet in Judah. There used to be just one kingdom in the promised land, the kingdom of Israel. And one king sat on the throne and ruled the whole kingdom. But after Solomon, things had descended into chaos. There had been civil war. The tribes were in conflict with one another idolatry and injustice was rampant in the land. The kingdom had been split. Now there was the Northern kingdom of Israel and the Southern kingdom of Judah. And things were just not going very well with either of the kings who ruled those lands. Most of the kings in that time period were wicked kings who didn't follow God's law or lead the people to follow God's law and keep the covenant. And eventually they would ally themselves with foreign powers, Gentile powers, who would go on to betray them and oppress them. Firstly, the empire of Assyria. They would invade the Northern kingdom. And a few years later, Babylon would come and finish off the job and scatter the entire people of Israel. So this was a dark time, but things were going to get even darker before the dawn would come. Because God's people had been covenant breakers, they'd been faithless with God. They'd been faithless as his people went away from him, didn't follow his way in the world if you're following in your notes, God prophesied through Isaiah that a time of distress and gloom would come over the people. Referring to the fall of the nation and their expulsion from the promised land. There were some who wanted to say this wouldn't happen. If we just play our cards right, if we do a little bit of uh, you know, politicking and if we, if we smooth things over and make the right kind of friends in this territory, in this region, then things will go on as they always have and we'll be okay. And this disaster and this warning won't come to fruition and we'll, we'll be fine. We'll emerge from the darkness on our own. But listen to what Isaiah has to say to that way of thinking. Isaiah says in the verses just preceding chapter nine that I just read to you, just before that word of hope, Isaiah would write at the end of chapter eight, verse 20, consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. He's saying, listen to what I've been saying to you, not what anybody else is saying to you. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. And when they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. And then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. How's that for a prophecy at Christmas time? Distress and darkness and fearful gloom. That was the people's present reality. And Isaiah was saying to them, you were gonna have some more of that. That is what the future holds in store for you as you continue down the path that you're on. Now, if we are willing to take inventory, it would be easy for us to see that we too live in a dark time. I'm sure probably everyone throughout history has in some way or another lived in a dark time. All of us have experienced the disorientation of a pandemic, the fatigue of political division, the deterioration of institutional trust. And on top of that, As a society, we just deal with a lot of generational trauma and family dysfunction that's a normal part of a lot of people's lived experience in the home. I've been reading a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's a book that came out several years ago. It was a New York Times bestseller. It has a lot to say about um, trauma in a society and how we carry that in our minds and our bodies. And in this book, Dr. Vander Kolk, the author, writes these words. Research by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has shown that one in five Americans was sexually molested as a child. One in four was beaten by a parent to the point of a mark being left on their body. And one in three couples engages in physical violence. A quarter of us grew up with alcoholic relatives and one out of eight witnessed their mother being beaten or hit. We may be a post-enlightenment society, but with all our education and all our progress, we still live in a pretty dark world. Some of you here in the room today, within the sound of my voice, feel the darkness, like distinctly and personally. In the season of life that you're in, you're well acquainted with it. You know what it looks like to lose and to suffer and to have pain in your life. I don't mean to to put my finger into a wound, but it's worth naming the kinds of experiences and the things that you're dealing with for so many of you in the room that you're walking around just bearing and carrying pain and suffering and loss in your bones right now because of what you've walked through or what you're currently walking through. And if that's you, you might feel like you're in a tailspin, like you're in a fog like you hit rock bottom or the bottom just fell out entirely beneath you and you got no legs to stand on. And you're asking questions like, where is God? And who is God? And is there a God? And what am I supposed to do now? How do I move on from this? Do I even want to? Can I even move on from this? So can we just like keep it, keep it real here for a moment and acknowledge that you could read your Bible to cover to cover and you won't come away with an easy answer for every one of your questions. But what I would tell you is that you'll find a lot of the same questions being asked and you'll encounter a God who's not afraid of the dark. And so if you're in the valley of the shadow of death, you're walking through that in this current season of life, if you've been there very recently, it's worth naming, isn't it? That the church is in a place where we just sing glory, hallelujah all the time. Lament is the native language of Advent. This is the season of the year where we bring forward all of our longings and our pain. And we, we set that on the table before the Lord. And we anticipate the, the forthcoming miracle of Christmas. And we just trust that with our longing and our pain, that because of who God is and what he's done and bringing us Jesus, That he's gonna see our pain and do something with it and in it and through it. That's what we trust at Christmas time. But Advent reminds us that the pathway to get there, the darkness that we have to walk through and what God wants to do with our pain. As Richard Rohr says, if we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. This is hard work, right? It goes against the grain of what we want to do with our darkness. What we wanna do with our darkness is evaded at all costs, like put it in a closet somewhere, stuff it in a box, hide it far away. We'll do retail therapy, right? We'll we'll practice all sorts of avoidance behavior and numbing patterns. We'll use TV and media and substances and purchasing things to make us happy, to avoid the negative emotions. We'll repress pain and cycle it back into the world until we can't do that anymore. Then we'll wallow in it and we'll succumb to it. This is natural, but dysfunctional means of dealing with pain and with darkness in our lives. We want to evade it and to get rid of it. But I just want to throw a question out there for us to consider today in this season of Advent. If you're following in your notes, what if while I'm waiting on God to deliver me from darkness, God is waiting on me to encounter him in the darkness? This is the brilliant insight of St. John of the Cross. He was a Spanish mystic who coined the phrase Noche Obscura del Alma, the dark night of the soul. St. John of the Cross wrote that no one will progress in the spiritual journey without entering into darkness. This is a necessary and normal part of maturing into the fullness of Christ and who he's called you to be. So the fears that we have today of doubt, of uncertainty, of suffering, of loss, of pain, of spiritual boredom, those things are not the enemies of the spiritual life. They can be tools. They can even be crucibles. The things that God uses to shape us and to form us and to move us deeper into him and toward him. St. John of the Cross writes, and he's speaking about the dark night of the soul when he says these words. He says, "From this arid night, there first of all comes self-knowledge, The whence, as from a fountain, rises this other knowledge of God." In other words, what he's saying is that in our darkness, God is at work to reveal some things within ourselves and through that into your work, we will discover a deeper knowledge of God. And John doesn't mean knowledge as in information, in analysis, he means knowledge as in union, knowledge as in relationship, not the way that you know math, but the way that you know your family, your most intimate relationships. That's what he's talking about, the knowledge, the love, the union with God that is born from and through the darkness. So darkness is necessary, but the good news for us and this is what we look ahead to in Christmas. What we remind ourselves of in Advent is that darkness is not final for Christians. Darkness is a womb. It's a place where life is formed and emerges. And darkness for Isaiah is just such a thing. He envisions from this darkness, a new birth of hope. This is why he says the forefront of Isaiah chapter nine. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations. There's some history, some context to what he's saying there. Zebulun and Naphtali are tribal lands belonging to Israel the Northern Kingdom and they border to the west, the Sea of Galilee. So they belonged to this region known as Galilee. And Galilee was not a, a popular or well-liked, well-received portion of Israel's lands back in those days. People didn't think very highly, didn't expect a whole lot out of Galilee. And there's some reasons for that. King Solomon, uh, during his reign, he had donated and kind of an exchange. He had given away 20 towns that belonged to the region of Galilee, to Zebulun and Naphtali. He'd given them away to the Gentile king of Tyre. And so now Gentiles are moving in here, and they were occupied by a Gentile ruler. But the king of Tyre, when he goes to inspect this new land that he's been given by Solomon, he's not very pleased. He's a little bit bit underwhelmed. I don't know if you've ever had the experience where maybe a friend has recommended to you a restaurant, and they're singing its praises, and you go to this place because you're excited to try this new thing in town and you know, people are giving it good reviews and you go there and you, you eat your meal and you, you have your dining experience and you just leave with a little bit of a, a bad taste in your mouth, right? Like, oh, I think they, they over-promised and under-delivered on that one, right? This is how the king of Tyre feels. He goes and inspects this land and he names the land that he's been given good for nothing. So he calls it. He says, Galilee. That's good for nothing. That's what I'm gonna call this new land of mine. He's not very pleased with it. This region of Galilee was also the first to fall to the empire of Assyria when they began their initial invasions. About 10 or so years before the collapse of the Northern Kingdom, Assyria was already uh, pressing in and raiding into the Northern tribes like Zebulun and Naphtali. And so they were the first to suffer under, be humbled by the empire of Assyria. You may also know, that Nazareth was in Galilee. Nazareth, like the rest of Galilee, wasn't a place that people thought much of. Hundreds of years after Isaiah was written, when John would write his gospel, he tells the story of when Philip uh, meets Nathaniel and tells him the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Nathanael do? He replies, can anything good come from Nazareth? Right, I mean, this is just not a place. It's been humbled. People don't expect a whole lot out of Galilee. And Nathanael had no idea that Isaiah's prophecy was about to be fulfilled by Jesus, the Galilean Messiah. But John knew. It's why in that same opening chapter of his gospel, John would write, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, that's Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Continuing on into verse 9, he continues and says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Friends, as you're following your notes, this is what we believe about Jesus, that he is the light Isaiah saw on the horizon and that John knew face to face. That's who Jesus is. He's the dawn of the new day. He stands on the frontier at the end of the ages and ushers in God's kingdom of justice and righteousness and peace. He's the cause for rejoicing to a people who have walked in darkness. He's the only true son of David worthy to be called wonderful counselor and mighty God and everlasting father and prince of peace. His reign will have no end. And he's the reason that our inventory of the darkness is fearless. Now, you may notice that Isaiah begins his prophetic poem in the past tense, as if the people had already seen the great light, when in fact, in reality, Isaiah and the people are still in the midst of this dark time. But from Isaiah's perspective, God has already turned on the lights, and we're just learning to adjust our eyes. See, it belongs to the prophetic imagination both to name the darkness that others want to obscure as well as to envision the light that others cannot yet see. This is what Isaiah is doing. I wanna tell you a story about a guy named Kevin Hines. Kevin Hines grew up on the West Coast, had a rough life. He was an orphan. He was in and out of various foster care environments, Uh, most of which were not very good for him. And he had some uh, mental health issues, some mental illness that he was dealing with. Much of that was undiagnosed in his younger years. He just had a lot of darkness going on in his life. It was hard for him growing up. And so he decided that he didn't want to be here anymore. And one day he gets on a bus and he travels to the Golden Gate Bridge. And he gets to the Golden Gate Bridge and he's on the bus and he's just weeping because he knows what he is about to do, but he's got this just this ray of hope that maybe maybe somebody cares, maybe somebody will see him on this bus and see the pain that he's carrying. But the bus driver urges him just to get off the bus. The guy across the aisle from him on the bus says to his buddy, "What's this guy's problem?" And at that moment, he says, "I just knew. It didn't matter. Nobody cared. Nobody saw me. Nobody understood." He was going to that bridge to jump and end his life, and he was sure of it in that moment. He was like many people who take a pilgrimage to that spot for that very same reason. 98% of those who jump from that bridge die. But Kevin was one of the 2%. As he was weeping, getting off of that bus, he goes right to the railing, grabs it and throws himself off of the railing of the Golden Gate Bridge. He plunges all the way down hundreds of feet into the water below him. It takes about four seconds of free fall before you hit the water from that height. But later on, Kevin would say, the millisecond that my hands left that rail, instant regret for my actions and the absolute recognition that I had just made the greatest mistake of my life. When Kevin hit the water, he broke a bunch of bones, shattered some vertebrae. But since that millisecond he left the bridge, he'd had this unstoppable will to survive. And so without the use of his legs, he clawed his way back through the water to make it to the surface. And he made it to the surface and he took a gasp of air, but he couldn't keep himself above the water. He was still going to drown. And that's when, and I kid you not, a sea lion, this is corroborated by people witnessing this from the top of the bridge. A sea lion came to his aid and nudged him repeatedly to keep him and his head above the surface of the water until the Coast Guard arrived and fished him out of the water. One of the men who pulled him out of the water from the Coast Guard said to Kevin, do you know how many people we pull out of this water that are already gone? He said, this unit has pulled 57 dead bodies out of this water and one live one. Since that day, Kevin got some help. He began to see some people to talk about his life, to share his story and his pain and his darkness with others. And now he's a mental health advocate who travels the world, speaking to kids, people in the military, people in the workplace and helping people to say the hard things, the hidden things, to do inventory of the darkness. And then he points them to life and to light and what's on the other side of darkness. And can I just tell you, this is what the people of God do. And this is what Advent is all about. We acknowledge the darkness within and without, but we adjust our eyes to hope and to peace and to love, to joy, because we know that to us, the son has been given. To us, a child is born. Jesus, the Messiah, the light of the world. Now, as we do each and every week, we're gonna take a moment to celebrate communion with one another. And as we partake of communion, Paul instructs the church to examine ourselves before we would consume these elements. And so today as a way of putting into practice what we've heard, I wanna invite you to take a personal inventory of the darkness in your own life. There's some space at the bottom of your notes where you can write down some answers to some of those questions. What pain am I carrying? Is there any sin that I need to bring out into the light? Are there any questions that I'm wrestling with right now that I just, I just need to name before the Lord? Or something I need to go and to talk to somebody about? And then not just the darkness, but name the light. What is the Lord saying to you in the midst of all that? Is there anything King Jesus wants you to know that you need to receive as a word from him today? So we'll give you a couple of moments, a minute or two, just to take some time and reflect before we partake of communion together. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church or to get connected, please visit cherryhillsfamily.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks for joining us.